This is Top Floor, episode 87. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 87. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast right up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. I'm back with Stephanie Smith, CEO and digital matriarch of Cogwheel Marketing, learning more about Cogwheel Analytics, the business intelligence tool she developed for hotel management companies and ownership groups. I know, Stephanie, that our listeners have heard of BI tools like the Star Report. Can you explain what types of data Cogwheel Analytics provides? Cogwheel Analytics is designed to be a Star Report, but for your digital marketing. Since the dawn of time, all of our digital marketing data has been compared against the hotel's own data. If you want to look at the website revenue, you're comparing it to yourself year over year, month over month. But that data, in and of itself is silos. How do we start looking at that data in a bigger way to make sense of what's good and what's bad and understand the true online story of that particular hotel? What types of data does Cogwheel Analytics provide? For any franchise or of multiple brands, someone that's working in digital marketing is aggregating data, copying, pasting, creating massive pivot tables from upwards of 20 different sources. Functionally, our reporting tool allows people to save time. So they're not doing that. They're spending time strategizing and action planning against the data instead of creating the report. We've mapped out data points for all the major brands so that you can see your channel mix, visit some revenue you get, be able to identify trends there, and also paid media, incorporating Cody data, Expedia data, Google data, so you can get a total online presence view of where your marketing dollars went and what the performance of all those different initiatives have been. How does having all of that information in one place help a company's commercial team? It allows for that real-time discussion. If you're sitting in a revenue strategy meeting, you have that data available at your fingertips to say, this is what's happening and this is what we should be doing to either correct that action or change or shift that strategy. Welcome to the show. Michael Clark grew up in a family of manufacturing entrepreneurs. So industrial engineering felt like the right course of study in college. After his eyes were open to the variety of available career paths during his MBA studies at NYU... Michael took a consulting job that focused on deploying critical thinking skills and got him interested in consumer behavior. Michael joined Modem Media, one of the first digital marketing agencies in the early days of the internet, and then started BB Clark and Myler after that company was acquired. In business for 18 years, BCM executes performance marketing for companies across multiple verticals, including travel. Today, we are going to talk about the death of cookies and what comes next. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. 
The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals and random strangers who have burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Ralph. Okay, Michael, usually people give me like this long explanation of their question. Very simple. What are a few signs my marketing strategy is outdated? Ralph cuts to the chase. What do you yes. think? <laughs> That's a great one. I think a lot of people are asking themselves this question these days, particularly as uh, new media platforms are popping up day in and day out. So, you know, I think, of course, the number one thing is people are. They've just stopped engaging with you. Uh, I think engagement with your content, uh, with all of your digital assets, uh, is something that every marketer needs to track, whether they're a big company or a small company. Uh, and something that's outdated, whether it be creative or where your ads are being placed from a media perspective, uh, failure to engage is most definitely a sign things are out of date, for sure. Interesting. You know, I do a lot of work on LinkedIn for my day job. And one of the trends that we see is that LinkedIn users are extremely shy. Like 60% of people who are on LinkedIn will never engage with a piece of content, but they're there scrolling. I have experienced this personally. Like I'll be at a conference or a meeting or something and people will be like, Oh, I saw blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Cool. I had no idea that you were even connected with me on LinkedIn. Um, so I think there's something to the idea of making content that has a message, whether or not someone engages with it. That that's not exactly the right way to phrase it, but you know, if somebody's scrolling through a feed, something that's a really clear, powerful key message that jumps off the page that doesn't necessitate like entering your email or whatever the case may be to get that main key point. What do you mm -hmm. think about that? I would agree with that. And in fact, uh, that feedback that you received, uh, which is word of mouth, is a form of engagement. Yes, Even though true. it wasn't directly measurable. So if those things are falling off as well, then yeah, it's time for a bit of a refresh. But uh, I would definitely agree with you. Uh, you know, clicking and sharing and commenting is probably a internet behavior that only certain audiences engage in. And but you know, I think overall they are uh, a bit of a leading indicator. Uh, but I would put word of mouth in there as a good metric to look at as well. That's a really good point. As an industrial engineer, you worked for an insurance company to help manufacturers remove risk from their process. Can you describe what that job was like? That's so interesting. I never even knew that existed. Yes. Uh, so product liability insurance is a big thing, of course. Um, and uh, that job is all about reverse engineering products and asking the question, what could go wrong? Uh, <laughs> and and um, as a, which is the direct opposite of what entrepreneurs are looking to do, which is, you know, how can this thing go great and blow up? And so sometimes it was a little bit of a, uh, engaging in conversations with people with this cold bucket of water wasn't uh, the most stimulating conversation for entrepreneurs. But I, I think one thing that's really um, something that I've taken away is this idea of probability and severity. It's kind of a, you know, the probability that something will occur and then 
the severity of it. If it does occur, it's kind of been a construct that I've carried around in my career, and it's helped me let go of things that I might otherwise be worrying about. So if it's a low probability of happening and it's low severity, let it go. Perfect plan. That is my approach, but I just happen to believe that anything bad is low probability and low severity. So I'm probably uh, more of a risk taker than your former employer would want to ensure. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Your MBA program, I know, really changed the course of your career and kind of sent you down the marketing and consumer behavior path. What caused that? Was it the coursework, a particular professor? Did you just know you were bored with your old job? Like what what sort of made that happen? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I, I think um probably I would say exposure, uh just exposure to new people with backgrounds that I didn't have. I was exposed to new careers. Uh I didn't know a lot about finance and being in New York, there are a lot of finance professionals, of course, and uh, there are a lot of also uh, students from overseas also engaged in careers that I had never heard of. So I think um, just exposure uh, to different paths, different ways of thinking, new options uh, for careers I hadn't really considered. And that really had an impact on me, and it really forced me to be a little bit introspective in terms of you know what's really important to me and what do I like and I thought that was that was really exciting and a lot of fun. That exposure point is interesting to me. There's kind of this side conversation that happens in hospitality, especially since we've been having a, a pretty intense talent crunch, mm-hmm. and it is that there are so many career paths that people have no idea exist in our industry. One of the accounts you worked on at Moda Media was Delta Airlines, a company with which I am obsessed. And you worked with them sort of at the beginning of the online travel agency boom. What Mm -hmm. are some of the things that you experienced at that point? Yeah, that was uh, you know two of the industries that were transformed by the emergence of the internet were financial services, of course, and travel. You know what's really interesting about airlines? uh, Their culture is built around uh, risk aversion, uh, which is what you want in an airline. (laughs) You want to get to point A to point B safely. But I have to you know give a lot of credit to the senior executives at Delta Airlines at the time, in that they were. Uh, full on into this uh, with big investments. They knew this was going to be changing their business in terms of how consumers plan and purchase travel. But they even went further thinking about how could this enhance customer service. And, you know, this is in the days of the Palm Pilot, which many of your listeners may never even have heard of as a mobile device. Uh, But I remember being able to check check in to my flight uh, through a Palm Pilot. And I was thrilled how amazing and awesome it was. Uh, so in many ways, they, they were uh, Delta was very much ahead of the industry in terms of using internet channels, not only to create a superior airline purchasing experience, but also uh, a great customer experience and just being able to um, tackle that in collaboration with, with that group at that time was, was really exciting. On the flip side of that, were there any things that OTAs tried with the airlines that now looking back, you're like, what in the world? Yeah. So, and 
of course, that was a topic of conversation, not only in the airline business, but also in hospitality too, where we had clients uh, in the hotel business. And uh, I think the OTAs came in so aggressively that it really shocked uh, a lot of the travel suppliers. And, uh, you know, we had OTAs talking about pre-purchasing uh, all of the airline routes, um, all of the seats uh, for a year. And uh, they argued that they could do a better job reselling uh, airline tickets than airlines can, which is kind of a, a, an interesting uh, uh, play, if you will. But, you know, that type of discourse was pretty shocking. And it really just cemented how real this was in terms of, uh, you know, the internet really transforming an industry. I remember sitting at my very first hotel and hearing, you know, veteran hotel veterans being like, well, this is just a fad. Nobody's going to want to book their hotel this way. They want to talk to somebody on the phone. Mm -hmm. Like, can you imagine? What? That's so crazy to think about now, but that's how it was in the 90s. It's wild. It's still, I mean, it, one of the things that even today drives me a little nuts is when you check into a hotel and somebody is keystroking in front of you. Uh, I almost now gravitate to hotels that let me use my phone as the key uh, so I could check into my room. Not that I don't want to speak to anyone. I love interacting with uh, uh, folks at the hotels, but uh, uh, there, there's something when you come in late at night and you just want to get into your room and there's a line there waiting for someone to put their fingers on a keyboard that says, oh, it doesn't have to be this way. Right. Well, watching someone typing is not a human interaction. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's that just a true, waste yes. of time. Yeah. Well, we could absolutely do an entire episode about the question that I'm going to ask you now. There is a big transformation taking place in digital marketing. Cookies are going away. Last click attribution is less and less meaningful if it ever was. Google's paid search model is becoming outdated. Like All of these things that digital marketers have relied on for 15 years are beginning to erode very quickly. Can you talk about what's going on now and what marketers should be doing? Yeah, I mean, this is the, the big topic right now where marketers, they can't target audiences as precisely as they used to be able to. And they can't also measure what's happening. So everybody's scrambling. Um, and I think what most uh, leading marketers are doing, particularly in the travel space, is that they are uh, examining their first-party data in terms of the information that they know about their customers. And they're getting really smart about how to uh, measure not only engagement with the brand and traditional things like lifetime value, uh, you know, retention. Um, so I, I think there's been a, a refocus on this uh, first party data and what these uh, marketers and organizations know about their customers. It's almost as uh, I like to say when I speak to my colleagues, it's the old plan is the new plan. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we used to measure uh, advertising through uh, control and exposed. So we had one group that we had a holdout, they didn't see the advertising, and another group that did see. And we would say, did this group purchase more than the group that wasn't exposed? We're kind of going back to that. It's interesting. I wonder, you know, this just occurred to me, OTAs 
have all of the first party data for the travel experiences they sell that does not pass through. So I wonder how that will evolve if it will evolve at all for you know in terms of who owns that customer relationship as it's impossible to get to a traveler any other way. Yeah, I, I think you know this idea of owning the customer is something that's probably not a goal. It, you know, it's just about as a as a travel marketer, how can you be more relevant, more useful, more value add? And I think all of us are in multiple loyalty programs across the entire uh, tra- travel landscape. So I think this idea of owning the customers probably going away with the cookie that's kind of a, a false uh kind of a false way to think about it for a lot of marketers i think they found that interesting you have said that social media is replacing company websites so i have to push back a little bit what about the idea that you cannot build your business on rented land for example i can think of businesses and content creators right now who are about to lose everything because they all their entire distribution takes place on TikTok and if TikTok gets banned where do they go so tell me why they shouldn't have a website as home base yeah i i totally get your point there uh you know i was thinking in that context i was thinking about how social media platforms have really taken a lot of the website experience and brought it into their own platform so you can purchase a product through a social media platform without leaving that platform. Uh, you can get lead generation ads and collect email addresses through social media platforms. So this construct of click and then come to my website and then transact there, there's more of a distributed experience that a lot of marketers are following today. I uh, One thing I've also said uh, is that if your uh, business is entirely based on Google, then you don't have a business. And I would put that to uh, TikTok as well. Yeah. Uh, so like in investing, diversity is important. So you, if you're going to have a business, you have to diversify. You have to be on multiple platforms and you have to have audiences that you're cultivating in multiple places. And I know a lot of influencers and marketers don't want to hear that because... That requires production. It requires... It's uh, hard. It's hard to be in many places at one time. Yeah. So that unfortunately, diversity is really, really important uh, You know, from a media perspective. Yeah. I think now more than ever with the sort of tightening down and bizarre things that are happening with the sort of legacy social media sites, I think there's... Mm-hmm. there Now is the time to be exploring you know, post and discord and all of yes. the different options to see if there's one, you know, tell me if you agree with this. Let me give you a lecture, Michael. Um, to <laughs> me, I don't think that it makes sense that you would give equal effort to every single channel that exists. But I do mm-hmm. think it's important to have dip your toe in some so that like, for me, for example, LinkedIn is a really important channel for this show. Mm-hmm. But if the algorithm changes tomorrow, I have my toe dipped a couple of other places and can change course. I don't know. What do you think? That's definitely the way to do it. And we're, when we're working with our clients, particularly in travel, uh, you, you want to be in many places. You always want to be testing 
uh, different content performs differently on different platforms. You have an opportunity to reach new audiences that you may not have considered. So, you know, all of these things are reasons why you should diversify. And I most definitely think that TikTok is going to be banned in the US. And uh, so if you're heavily invested there, uh, you, you should start testing right now. Yeah, that's so disappointing. That's like my primary entertainment source. I watch TikTok videos more than I watch television. So I'm going to be heartbroken when it goes away. Well, we'll, we'll see if they can cut a deal with the, with the uh, US government. I've got my fingers crossed, but I don't have a lot of hope. Right. <laughs> so customer personas seem to be one of those like tried and true pieces of marketing advice that business owners and entrepreneurs get all the time. Mm-hmm. You have an interesting take on customer personas. Can you talk about that a little bit? Tell us your take. Yeah, and I most definitely think, of course, knowing your customers is really useful. I, I just think the way that media platforms have evolved, the persona has become uh, a, a little less uh, impactful as a media input than it used to be. So you have companies like Google and Meta, uh, and they're saying, you know, you just give us your goal and we'll get the audience for you. You don't need to worry about the audience. We're going to find them for you. And what that's in essence done from a media planning uh, perspective is, you know, you you really need to think about all of the different uh, selling propositions uh, that you have uh, because different selling propositions can be more meaningful to one audience than another. And just put these selling propositions into these algorithms on Facebook, Instagram, Google, and others. And then the algorithm will figure out which audiences are going to respond best to each of those selling propositions. So I think the traditional way of media planning where you're focused on one audience persona or segment and then trying to get to that, that's become a little outdated with the way that uh, these media platforms are organizing their their algorithms today. They're, they're, they're kind of black boxes, more or less. Can you give an example of a selling proposition in case that's not ringing true to somebody that's listening named Susan Berry, sure. who doesn't know what you're talking about? <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, we have a client uh, in, in the wine subscription business and, uh, you know, wine subscriptions can be attractive uh, for many different reasons. One, you get home delivery. And you don't have to go to the store to get the wines. Number two, the wines are selected for you, and you're going to introduce to things uh, that you would never would have considered. And then three, of course, there's value uh, in terms of the, the 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 discount associated with purchasing in, in that way. So those are three different selling propositions. There's convenience, there's discovery, and there's potentially value. So. Uh, in the past, we may have just focused on one audience where discovery was really important. Uh, but now we can put those three selling propositions and many, many other ones that we uh, have been considering and see which one performs the best. And uh, not only that, we may be, again, reaching new audiences that we hadn't considered previously. So uh, I think you know we're thinking a little bit more broadly about all of the things that make our products and services attractive to a wider audience. And uh, these algorithms uh, can figure out where to send those uh, messages. And that's, that's what we want. Excellent. This sounds like a good time to take a break. When we come back, 
Michael and I talk about AI, Google Translate for dogs, and a loading dock story that actually happened on a loading dock. Be right back. I'm talking to Stephanie Smith from Cogwheel Marketing about Cogwheel Analytics, her company's new business intelligence tool. Can you give us a use case of how your customers are using Cogwheel Analytics right now? A lot of us in digital marketing, we look at our channel mix. How much revenue is coming in through our website? How much money is coming through the OTAs? How much is coming through GDS, voice? And then from the hotel sales efforts. So you can easily, with our dashboard, be able to look at the trends over the last 12 months and year over year and very easily see how your OTA demand shifts in certain seasons. It's a fairly easy picture to be able to identify those trends and then plan against that when you're looking at your strategy three, six, nine months down the road. What's the typical size of the company that can best benefit from Cogwheel Analytics? The platform is made for enterprise level. It's designed for companies that have 20 or more hotels in their portfolio. If you happen to oversee 20, 50, 100 hotels, you can buy where your quote-unquote problem children are and then spend time digging deeper into those individual hotels. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from each episode of Top Floor with a couple of very practical tangible tips to try either in their businesses or in their personal lives. Which travel marketing trends should we be paying attention to right now? Well, I think probably the most obvious one is AI, of course. Uh, And it's getting a lot of attention, not only in the travel business, but across uh, different industries. I would most definitely encourage uh, anyone Uh, and travel marketing if they haven't already done so to get on chat gpt or any of the other uh, ai platforms and experiment Uh, we're using these things right now with clients to write email copy to write seo smart copy for web pages uh, to write ads within social media to do image selection Um, there's so much that uh, these platforms can do And if you're a travel marketer, you most definitely need to be experimenting with this because travel is going to be transformed by AI, like a lot of industries. Uh, uh, But but I think travel especially is kind of ripe for the type of disruption that AI can bring. And if you're in travel marketing, you most definitely need to be familiar with it. We talked about data a little bit earlier, but what is the role of data in travel marketing now? How does it impact the marketing strategy? Yeah, I I think you data has always had enormous value in terms of telling us if something's working or not. Uh, So if advertising is going out to specific audiences or regions, uh, the data comes back and tells us, is it working? How well is it working? Is it the audience we want to attract? Um, of course, we can do interesting things like lookalike modeling, uh, where we can look at our own uh, email databases and determine who our most valuable customers are and then try to find more of them. So that's probably the, uh, the simplest uh, example. And probably, uh, historically speaking, in travel marketing, lookalike models have been something that's driven a lot of advertising within the travel space. But of course, there's experimentation in terms of, as I just described before, the new or different selling propositions that you're putting out there. 
uh, and you want to be able to determine if these things work. And the only way to do that is through data. And then the last thing I'll say too is that there are a lot of companies out there that uh, make their data and email lists available to travel marketers. So you may be able to partner uh, with someone that's completely outside the travel industry uh, that that has access to an audience that you don't, and you might be able to advertise to their audience by making use of uh, your partner's data. Uh, that's most commonly done through uh, data clean rooms. Uh, not to get too technical here, but basically, it's a way to uh, share email uh, databases without revealing. Uh, the actual, uh, you know, substance of who the people are, um, and, and it's a way to target. Now, a lot of travel marketers have been doing that for a long time. It's similar that data clean room terminology. It's similar to when you buy something with a credit card and then you start getting ads that are related to that purchase. So the yeah. the marketer doesn't have your credit card number and doesn't have your social media you know, profile necessarily, but there is a clearing house for that stuff to be exchanged that I think people don't understand. I think that's why people think they're being spied on and eavesdropped on because they're not realizing that they're just shopping with their credit card. <laughs> well, it, I mean, with all of the privacy legislation that's coming, it's not as easy to purchase that type of data out in the open marketplace through third parties like it used to be readily available. So now advertisers and particularly travel marketers are making direct partnerships with other companies and there's no middle uh, middle data broker involved. So I think that's the that's the big difference. Gotcha. The word personalization is one that there's like a big think piece on in every industry publication at least like every 6 months. It gets thrown around a lot, it gets written about with regard to the hotel business all the time. Mm -hmm. But I can't tell you that I have ever heard of a brand that I think has cornered the market on that at scale. Mhm. Mm Luxury resorts can do it right because they can charge enough to justify the fact that they're like filling your room with your favorite flowers and putting a picture of your dog and all that stuff. But <laughs> right. most hotel companies, most travel companies can't charge the pricing it would take to, to support that. So how can companies use technology and data to personalize a customer's experience at scale or in a way that's affordable and doesn't necessitate like jacking up prices? Yeah, that that's uh, that's a tough one. I think the example you gave is a good one with luxury because of the margins involved and that becomes integral to the service. Uh, uh, I, I think personalization as a goal is probably out of reach. Even the best luxury uh, companies um, have trouble with it. And, and you know, I, I think uh, uh, focusing on relevancy might be better than personalization because uh, even if you're you know relevant, uh, uh, you're still providing a, a valuable uh, you know service to your customers without having to get every little nuance and detail right about an individual's life and and re relevancy may may be something you know as simple as you know high level research uh, you know for example with one of the groups that we work with they have a lot of business travelers and uh, you know business travelers um, they don't always want to eat in the hotel uh, they like to get out and you know just 
putting together uh, uh, or, or using uh, uh, surveys, online surveys, email surveys to to ask a simple one simple question like, "What are some of your favorite uh, you know favorite foods?" And then putting together a list of restaurants that have that type of food in the area, you know, that you could do something very simple like that. And that's going to have a big impact on people. You know, it's not personalized, perhaps, but it's relevant to them. And, uh, you know, those things make a big difference and, and it's memorable. So I, I guess I would say uh, personalization might be too far, but just try to be more relevant to, to your guests. Right. You can sort of redefine personalization as you know, offering something to someone that feels like what they want versus like the towels are monogrammed with their initials. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so you get a little too far. Well, the incremental cost going from relevancy to personalization is enormous. Yes, uh, exactly. So, you know, let's just pull back a little bit and you're still going to have a great customer experience uh, just with a little relevancy uh, introduced. Okay, we've reached the fortune-telling portion of our show. So we're going to predict the future. We'll come back later. We'll see if you were right. If you're right, you win a prize. If you're not right, I charge you $500. Does that seem like a fair exchange? Fabulous, yes. Cool, cool, cool. What is one prediction you have about the role of AI tools in marketing? Yeah, I think that... uh... You know, it's oh, when new technologies arise, it's always easy to speculate or forecast that the existing powerhouses are going to dominate the new technology into the future. So, you know, maybe Airbnb or Ritz Carlton or American Express is going to be the the king of AI in, in uh, marketing or travel marketing, but. Uh, I'm quite certain that there's uh, somebody somewhere in their garage working on this right now. And it's always the people in the garage that come out of nowhere and invent something uh, that has a huge impact that no one really anticipated. So, you know, I think um, one prediction I have about AI in terms of travel marketing is it's still really difficult to do uh, uh, group travel, uh, planning group travel. And, you know, I was kind of, uh, uh, enlightened a little bit by one of my colleagues was planning a uh, vacation uh, with a bunch of families and they all had young children. Uh, So she went to chat GPT and said, I'm going to Europe, Uh, give me uh, things to do and itineraries to do uh, that are in Europe. That's fun to do with young kids. And well, it put a great itinerary together. And I think there's some opportunity out there, the travel space to use AI to help groups not only plan, but also maybe even to purchase and get a discount in exchange for the uh, uh, the group uh, committing to the itinerary. So uh, I think there's going to be some interesting uh, group planning uh, travel apps out there that are powered by AI. That's good to know. And I'm taking notes for my investment portfolio. If you could wave a magic wand and create one piece of technology, what would it be? What would it do? I think I need a Google Translate for my dog. That would be awesome <laughs> if I had something like that. Yes, uh, if I love someone that. invented that technology, I'd say, what is he saying? Why is he barking? So, uh, no, I, I think, but if uh, in, in the realm of marketing, I would probably, uh, you know, I, I still, I, again, this is kind of related to the, the last conversation, which is, uh, you know, how can I 
plan a trip uh, that's involving multiple people uh, and do it really easily. Uh, I think travel agents used to do that, right? Mm -hmm. You said, hey, I have eight people. We're going down to spring training in Florida and I I need an itinerary with restaurants and all of that selected. So I think technology is going to do that uh, one day at the snap of a finger. And I'm really looking forward to that. Okay, folks, before we tell Michael goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Michael, what is the story you would only share on the loading dock? Wow, the loading dock. I've been, <laughs> I've been to the loading dock a few times. There are some crazy stories down there. Uh, I think I have literally a loading dock story. Um, I was uh, in my young consulting days pulling up to a manufacturing facility in Western Pennsylvania. It was a beautiful summer day, uh, kind of pretty, pretty hot out, if I, if I recall. And uh, as I pulled up, there was a crowd gathering outside and people looking out the windows and this gentleman came bounding uh, off of the this loading dock that was there, and he was starting to strip his clothing off. He was removed his shirt and swung it above his head and took off his shoes and his pants, and he was buck naked, and there were probably 70 people that were chanting uh, and clapping, and he jumped into his car and he drove off and his clothing was laying across the parking lot. And I was like, what the heck is going on here? And I just, this is my first day at this facility. I walked up to one of the folks there. I'm like, what just happened there? And uh, I said, well, that gentleman has been working here since he was 18 years old. And He's been here for some 40 years and this was his last day. You know, he's retired. And I was like, wow, that's oh, amazing. And, and what I remember most about it, it just really affected me because I was just thinking, I was like, man, I hope I can be that happy uh, someday. But I want to be that happy going into work, <laughs> yes. not leaving work. Exactly. Uh, and, and that just that uh, the strut and uh, it was probably one of the best. Uh, uh, you know, watch any movie about, uh, you know, people stripping their clothes off. This guy had all the moves that any <laughs> professional dancer could have. Uh, but it was it was a pretty incredible thing. And um, yeah, I wish I could be that happy going into work, not leaving. So that that's kind of what I took away from that. That is unbelievable. Just crazy. first of all, the meta-ness of a loading dock story at an actual loading yeah, dock. Exactly. And yet you hit the... Loading dock favorite, which is naked people that come along all the time under all kinds of circumstances. Michael Clark, thank you so much for that amazing story and for being here. I know that our listeners got some great things to think about as the marketing landscape changes quickly. And I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor with me. Thank you, Susan. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much. I am wrapping up this interview within an interview with Stephanie Smith, CEO of Cogwheel Marketing. Stephanie, I want to know what your customers are saying. How are they reacting to Cogwheel Analytics? 
the users in our platform tend to be people that are already doing digital marketing, but also people that are in the sales and revenue management field that want to take a full commercial strategy approach. The feedback is, what a time saver. We have management companies that we've supported on the agency side that we're spending up to one week out of the month just doing ownership reports. So as painful as that is, how can we ease the pressure for them on a report side? Number two, it's speed of getting the data. We've built best in class with our servers so that we're pulling large amounts of data in a very small amount of time. Where we want to go is helping be that star report and that benchmark for the industry. So once we're aggregating larger sets of data that we can really establish the best practices on the branded hotel side to be able to say, this is what the expectations are and be able to say, is this good, bad, a total scorecard for your total online presence. I love that. So you're going to have data at such scale that you can truly set some benchmarks for hotel properties. Exactly, Susan. Took the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) What's the best way for someone who's interested to get a demo of Cogwheel Analytics? We certainly invite anybody that's coming to Toronto this summer for the HSMAI and high-tech conferences. We will have a booth at high-tech. So we welcome anyone to come by and demo either Cargo Analytics or talk to us about agency services. Otherwise, feel free to visit our website at cogwellmarketing.com and we can walk you through what the visualizations look like. To learn more about Stephanie Smith and her company, be sure to go back to episode 19 and listen to it from start to finish. Thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at toplerpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 87. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 